Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Tuttle's off to an electric start here in the bleachers. We are back. It is Jeff Blum, co-host of Bleacher Blums, and it has been a relatively interesting slow week for me just because I've had a couple of days off and then I got to work a YouTube game. Tuttle on the other side, you have been working diligently at your job, yet you make time for the bleachers, which I greatly appreciate. Tuttle, how are things going on your end? You have got the coffee, you've got the camo, and you're ready to take on the day, man. What's up? Yeah, I look like I'm going hunting, I think. Um, Blummer, Great to be with hunting you as for always. What is the question? Yeah, there you go. I was I was hunting for coffee in the kitchen, and oh, miraculously, I found it. Success, success. Uh, yeah, going really well. I uh, I got to tell you, I was at the gym this morning. As we you know, as we often know, I go to the gym fairly early. But uh, some guy goes, uh, "What do you What do you do for a living?" And he goes, "Is that your job?" He goes, "That that uh, that bleacher blumps thing. Like, what do you guys really talk about? Like, how do you market that and all this stuff?" And I was like, "Oh." That's so funny. You've been listening. He goes, that he goes, I've fallen you on Instagram. And he goes, um, those snippets are incredible. I go, You mean short hops? You know, like hey, Ooh. like I know. But I but I, you know, so as always, we have to give a shout out to Ramos. Um, but that's a little backhanded way to say I we never got that before with, you know, the other network we were working with and you know, by ourselves, obviously when we're doing the editing and the sound and all the cut up. But I think, you know, I feel like even in my small little community, we're, we're making a difference. So, um, you know, it fired up a conversation. The guy wants to hear more about it and like, what's the topic? And I said, well, you got to listen to a few more. And he goes, well, no, I downloaded it. I subscribed. He goes, the first one I listened to, you guys were talking about, you know, the Field of Dreams game or something like that. And I said, yeah, you know, he said, how did it start anyway? Just started this whole conversation. And basically all he saw was the, like the King Tut short hop with the, you know, the beard and the crown or something (laughs) like Tuttle's back. And it just, it's amazing, I guess, to me to realize, all right, there are certainly people out there listening, but secondly, that that just a little marketing goes a long way. So uh, again, uh, a roundabout way to thank Mark for, you know, all the support and all the effort that he's putting into the podcast, but it's certainly making a difference. And, uh, I'm enjoying it. It was a fun conversation to have somebody bring it up to me instead of me wearing my Bleacher Blum shirt to work out. And they're like, oh, what's that? <laughs> hey, well, this is a little podcast that my friend and I started. So anyway, so it's going well. And uh, that was a good start to the day to have somebody kind of come up to me and ask like, what's all that stuff you're putting on Instagram? That stuff's fantastic. So anyway, I don't know if you've gotten the same feedback or, you know, you see people around the ballpark if they talk about that, but it's, uh, you know, it's been going well. And I think that just indicates that uh, certainly the podcast is getting stronger and stronger. It is. It's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I get, I see people randomly throughout the stadium. Sometimes when we're at Minute Maid Park with the Bleacher Blums hat on with one of the t-shirts on. Uh, so it, it's fun in that sense. And I'm glad that people are actually responding and getting on that, uh, getting on that train, so to speak. I, you know, Ramos put it out on Twitter that we do have that uh, YouTube channel. I try and retweet it as often as I can, because you know what, it's kind of interesting to get the quick glimpses of us and, and get those quick sound bites of us talking about a certain topic. And then if that intrigues you, then you go 
over to the podcast platform, download it, and listen to it. And of course, we're always asking everybody to subscribe, rate, review, because being on the Blue Wire Network, I think it's given us uh, you know an opportunity to expand a little bit and get some uh, you know get some guests on. We've got some future guests coming up uh, as far as interviews are concerned. Uh, the most recent one with Evan Gaddis did extremely well, so we appreciate everybody who's been downloading it. And of course, you can reach Tuttle at Real David Tuttle on Twitter, myself at Blummer27 on Twitter, and we also have a social media network uh, that uh, you know runs at Bleacher Blums, and that's mostly Mark Ramos doing a phenomenal job. So we do appreciate that. And of course, what Tuttle just said, the YouTube channel is picking up a little bit of steam. But if you don't have time to listen to that full podcast or you want to get bits and pieces or you actually want to see how bad my hair is one day or what cool hat that uh, Tuttle is wearing or what kind of... Uh we're not emojis, but they're the, the the animal emojis or the different uh, filters that Mark Ramos may place on us is also a good time on YouTube. So make sure you go to that Bleacher Blums YouTube channel and check out the short hops. Those will just be quick snippets of some conversations that Tuttle and I are having. Make sure you share that around. Uh, we are going to tell you what's on tap. Brought to you by St. Arnold. We've got some hot topics that we're talking about. Yadier Molina. This one actually kind of surprised me, but uh, he's going to get a one-year deal. We'll talk about him and maybe his possibility of retirement and Hall of Fame. Uh, Alex Bregman and Kyle Tucker came back to the Astros lineup the other day on the YouTube game that I did. Who are those guys? Only only main cogs in a team that's struggling against the uh, Kansas City Royals. Well, you know about a salsa. Oh, yes. The Breggy Bomb Salsa or something like that, isn't it? Look at that. I know about salsa, but I don't know the guy. Yeah, well, hopefully we get a plug and maybe we could get a Breggy Bomb Salsa commercial in on this thing. That'd be uh, that'd be kind of nice. Ooh. But uh, Miguel Cabrera made history getting his uh, 500th home run. He's also getting close to a milestone of 3,000 hits. And uh, I've got some questions about that and some other guys that you might want to keep your eye on as far as milestones are concerned. But did you did you happen to catch any of that YouTube game that we uh, we did the other day? Uh, I did, yeah. I always try and tune in for you. you. Uh, yeah. Nice. I mean, not not a whole lot. It was right in the middle of the- Appreciate you. Yeah, right in the middle of the workday. But, you know, if I can, if I can get some of the- Lummer ear candy, you know, during the middle of the day, you know, <laughs> keeps me keeps me going. So yeah, I definitely caught a little bit. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I got to work with Scott Braun and Jeremy Guthrie, who played for the Kansas City Royals for a while. And I will admittedly agree with some of the fans that were out there. And I know that a lot of Astro fans tuned in because some of the poll questions that were being asked were uh, Astro heavy as far as the answers were concerned. So I greatly appreciate all the Astro fans tuning in. And uh, I, in the sense that I have to agree with them, it was a it wasn't a very heavy, but it was definitely tilted in the direction of the Kansas City Royals. I found myself fortunately know enough about them to be able to be complimentary and have some conversations about them. But at the same time, the best team on the field was the Houston Astros, and they are the best team as far as how the season's going to end. And uh, But it's nice to see that the Kansas City Royals, and I think a lot of these things revert back to the Houston Astros and the foundation they created in building a winning ball club. And it was interesting to see how other teams do it. The White Sox are very similar to what the Astros did, but the Kansas City Royals kind of build their team around their ballpark. And I found that kind of fascinating. And I'm not sure if you recognize this, Tuttle, but the, the Kansas City Royals for me are a little bit of a throwback. Uh, they've got some really good start, young starting pitching, but their lineup, they preach defense, they're fast. 
because they've got a big outfield to cover out there in Kauffman Stadium. But at the same time, it's really hard to hit home runs out there. But they have a couple of guys at the top of their lineup that are high contact, speed, bunt, you know, sacrifice, uh, hit and run, handle the bat type guys. And it was kind of refreshing, actually, to see that. I don't know if you agree. I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, this is where we've talked about analytics versus the eyeball test quite a bit in the past. But I think that that's the the kind of the foundation for success is not copying somebody else. You know, I think what if you go to uh, football and everybody kind of uh, the consensus now in modern day football is that Bill Belichick is one of the greatest coaches. And I just remember playing high school football and we did have film back then. That was great. But uh, we would sit in Monday morning after the Saturday night game and we wouldn't watch Saturday's game, win, lose, draw, whatever. But we would watch the team that we were playing. And then all week they'd say, look, look at this tight end. He's six foot four, 250. All they do is throw a hot read to him. So you two linebackers are going to do this. And we just schemed the whole week. And, you know, we would have the scout team run this offense. They would run all their plays. And I just think it's so funny that, I mean, you know, I always, I always argued that Moneyball was a great book. And, you know, Billy Bean did great things with the A's. But really when it came to fruition is when the Red Sox took all the money from Moneyball, they took a high payroll and they used the same strategy. But I, I think, you know, that's what you have to do. If you have a ballpark, you got to play like that. Like Billy Hamilton's not the greatest center fielder in all these places, but in Kansas City or in, um, you know, some of the bigger ballparks where there are not a lot of home runs, San Francisco, he'd be a fantastic addition, guys like that. And you have to build your yeah. team. And I think, you know, I am certainly a Giants homer, but when we look at the Giants and you keep talking about them and how successful they are, I mean, they are built for their ballpark. They're built for San Francisco. And that's why there are a lot of kind of, I wouldn't say no-name guys, but I think a lot of people thought like Yastrzemski's grandson's not going to be like Carl Yastrzemski, but he's great there. He's awesome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've really done a good job knowing that pitching and defense is what's going to get it done out there with timely hitting. And I think that that's the way, I don't know if it's the wave of the future, but when you talk about Kansas City and you know, I mean, even Houston, right? I mean, I think they're built for that ballpark. I mean, the the Crawford boxes get worn out, yeah. Uh, even by left left handed hitters. So I, I don't know if you if that's a unique thing. You obviously ask the question: Is that a unique thing around baseball? I mean, do you think the copycat GMs are few and far between, or do you think that more teams are going to be more uh, inclined to build their team around their ballpark? Because I think that's the key to success. I think they should. They're playing eighty one games in those ballparks, so you got to adapt to your environment. And I think it's kind of interesting just in the sense that you saw you know the texas rangers are, are a good example you know i'm not sure what they're doing in texas right now to be honest with you but they they moved into a new ballpark and i think they're trying to figure out what team's going to be successful in that new ballpark because previously in that outdoor stadium that they had in arlington the ball flew out of that ballpark so you could put a bunch of sluggers in there and let them go but it was tough to find pitchers who could pitch in that ballpark now you're finding in their new ballpark Pitching can be good. Our defense is going to be better, but we don't have guys. We got to figure out how to produce runs. And I think that's why you saw Joey Gallo. Obviously, the trade value was high, but I think that's why Joey Gallo got jettisoned. Now they might start start making adjustments and getting some guys that can play it maybe a little more of an all-around game. But with Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo going to New York, duh, 
that right field porch is 310 feet away from home plate. So why not get some lefties that can pull the ball and get it out of the ballpark? Because they were a right-handed dominant team, much like the Houston Astros to what Tuttle's talking about with Minute Maid Park. Why wouldn't you have a heavy right-handed dominant team, hitting team in Minute Maid Park because of those Crawford boxes? But I think that, you know, once you, you know, the analytics has kind of maxed itself out for me. And I think now, like Tuttle is saying, we're putting our eyes on things and we're adapting to our environments. And I think you might see some of these ball clubs use the analytics with, you know, the idea of how do we win inside our ball club, inside our ballpark and adjust accordingly. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch that unfold. But uh, I think that's going to do it for this first segment. We're going to start getting into the meat of this podcast. We are going to break down these bleachers and what we've got going on, but we got to take a break and a word from our sponsor. The best way to learn a language, immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. And we are back in the bleachers. David Tuttle out there on the left coast. Jeff Blum right here in Houston, enjoying a great baseball season as the dog days of summer uh, start to come to an end. And if you enjoyed the dog days of summer, make sure you listen to that previous podcast because we will tell you exactly what that means. With the dog days of summer coming and some of the stories starting to unfold, maybe a little bit of a lull before that late September rush, uh, there is some interesting news around the league. And one of them is in St. Louis. Uh, Yadier Molina, a catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals for what feels like the last 25 years. But this is a guy who has played a lot of baseball. He's done it behind the plate. And throughout the course of Major League Baseball, the history of it, he is the fourth ranked catcher as far as games played as a catcher. He currently sits at 2,081 games caught. And that's behind Bob Boone, Carlton Fisk. And believe it or not, I was actually in the ballpark when Yvonne Rodriguez broke the record or set the record, but he sits at 2,427 as we as we speak. And he broke that record as an Astro in Arlington, which was kind of crazy because obviously a majority of his games caught in Arlington with the Texas Rangers, but breaking it as a Houston Astro, I thought was kind of uh, ironic in that sense. But Yadier Molina signed a one-year contract for $10 million, and I think he pretty much announced his retirement with that, uh, with that contract. First of all, I'm shocked because really hasn't slowed down, but at the same time, I can only imagine what it is like catching 2,000 games in the major leagues and what that does to the body. But he has continued to maintain an incredible ability to have effective at-bats, uh, that's probably the first thing to go is the bat speed and some of the quality of at-bats, but he continues to have quality at-bats. 
his management of pitching staffs and what he does behind the plate is remarkable. And some of the pitchers that he's gone through in his career would probably be a pretty stout list of all-stars. His ability to still pop out from behind home plate and throw guys out is absolutely incredible. So, you know, I admire what Yadier Molina has done. I appreciate how he calls games. I think he's a future Hall of Famer. I do believe that. Um, and it's kind of cool that he is going to get that one more year to kind of have that uh, that farewell tour across Major League Baseball as he uh, announces his retirement with that last year deal. But uh, what do you think about Yadier Molina? And is he a Hall of Famer in your eyes? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, what is it? It's always the, what's your gut reaction? I mean, I, I my knees and my back hurt just thinking about you know, crouching down and behind, you know, behind home plate. And I, and I, my analogy always with catchers, or at least one that I've come up with over the past few years is like running backs, you know, running backs in the NFL used to be such a commodity and guys, you know, the running game and they would keep them around, you know, your Jim Browns, Barry Sanders like that. But now it's kind of a passing game and the wide receivers there. I mean, they say the life of a running back, especially a high end one is about three or four years. And you think about, you already brought it up, but Yachty is, productive still at the plate so there's so many things that people don't understand about you know i I don't know how they got the tools of ignorance kind of you know stamped on them but (laughs) somebody yeah totally unfair because these guys do more than most position players and pitchers and all other players in baseball combined you know i mean they're kind of the quarterback they they were the ones that had the little wristbands before anybody had the cards in their hat and their back pocket but essentially you know, they had to have the scouting report on all of the, uh, the um, you know, the opponent's hitters. They had to know what their pitchers uh, throw, obviously, which is easy, but then know when to throw it to which pitcher or, excuse me, to which hitter at what time. Mm-hmm. And then what's going well for that pitcher that night. Like, look, I know I can have confidence to do this. And then as a pitcher, you have to have confidence in the catcher to block it if you know it's an 0-2 pitch and you're trying to waste one in the dirt, something like that. So, I mean, there's so many variables that go into that. That, And then you have to hit, you know, like you said, to hold your, you know, hold your weight at the plate, you got to hit at least 260, 270. You know, I just think there's so many things that go into that, you know, and Yachty is certainly well-respected, well-liked, and, you know, wouldn't have played, you know, 2,500 games behind the plate if his manager and his pitching staff didn't have the ultimate faith in him. So, uh, pretty remarkable accomplishment. And I got to think that um, he'll probably go into the Hall of Fame when he retires. And uh, the fact that he's going to play his whole career in St. Louis, it looks like. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe this is swan song. He finishes and he's like, <laughs> oh, I'd like to come back. And he plays two years somewhere else. And you're kind of like, oh, gosh, all right. I guess he went for it. But, uh, you know, I mean, the longevity, the ability, and then the complexity with um, with that position, I think, you know, certainly put him in a class of the highest regard. So as a pitcher working with a catcher, I mean, it would be it would be pretty special to be able to work with a catcher for five, six, seven years. But what, what are some of the more important qualities as a pitcher that you want in, in your catcher? Because I feel like the catching position this day and age – it's not lacking, but it's it's definitely evolving a little bit because there is so much involved with being able to handle pitching staffs. You know, you know, you, we talk about Yadier Molina as good as he is, and he's still putting together great at bats. You know, Martin Maldonado here in Houston seems like a guy that's really good at working with pitchers, but he has the more sporadic offensive ability. But as a pitcher, what are a couple of key attributes that would really you think would make you a better pitcher? Yeah, I mean that's. Blummer, an incredible question. I don't know if we've ever talked about this at this at this kind of um, level, the depth of what 
you know, pitchers are selfish, you know, I mean, I think we talk about what's successful in, um, I mean, we're all a little bit selfish as athletes, um, but to have the most success, I'd rather have a guy. Uh, and I think you've seen this with like Gary Sanchez. I can think of a couple other guys that, you know, he might endear himself to the team because he's three for four with two bombs. But man, you know, if he can't block a ball in the dirt and he lets in, you know, a couple runs with a wild pitch here or a pass ball here. I mean, I wanted great defense and I wanted a catcher who that you had the utmost confidence in that if the mistake happened, it was going to be on you. Meaning, you know, if I threw a 50 foot slider, then that's on me. But if I threw a good O2 slider that's, you know, near the plate, I expect it to, you know, be blocked. So I just wanted, you know, in a simple way, I just wanted to have the utmost confidence that my catcher was prepared and that he was going to do everything he could to keep me um, on point and then, you know, doing my job. So nothing like we talked about this before, the mental part of all of these sports, when you get to the tip of the spear, the mental part is the key. Mm. And, you know, you can see it sometimes. You and I have talked about this or texted about it when the pitcher doesn't have confidence in what the catcher's throwing. Or, you know, you guys will even make comments. You know, most announcers are in tuned in, you know, TK will be like, uh-oh. He shook him off twice. Oh, there's a visit. Like he goes out to visit. Like, yep. And, you know, the more crucial the situation, the more high leverage inning, obviously, the more important it is for them to be on the same page. But, uh, you know, and we've seen Bull Durham, right? Like, all right, you know, he's shaking me off. He's shaking me off. All right. Oh, boy. Oh, no. He's shaking off the sides. Big mistake. This son of a bitch is throwing a two hit shutout. He's shaking me off. You believe that shit? Charlie, here comes the deuce. And when you speak of me, speak well. You know, when you speak of me, speak well, right? Like it's a, yep. yeah, you have, you, you, I, so me personally, to answer the question directly, I wanted a catcher who was a defense first guy, but you don't want him hitting 190 either. But I think that's what's impressive about Yachty and, and many of the big league catchers. You know, these guys that hit mm -hmm. 250 with 20 home runs, but that can manage an entire pitching staff. I mean, look at, I agree, Martin Maldonado. I mean, you, you're going to see some spikes, you know, some hot streaks hitting. And, but when you look at, you know, a guy who can manage Verlander and Cole and Granky, and I mean, these are a lot of them very type A or at least confident pitchers, you know, at the highest level. And they all have different stuff with different makeup and different mentalities. You know, an armchair quarterback or a, you know, a, a team psychologist. I mean, they need to have all of these hats to wear. <laughs> it's all of those in one, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of the better catchers you played with. I mean, I, I've said on this podcast and don't know him personally, but A.J. Persinski was a real tough guy to play against. Mm -hmm. He was a pain in the ass. He kind of needled the other teams and stuff. But I'm, I'm assuming pitchers really liked him. They liked throwing to him and teammates liked him. Do you recall, like, I mean, Osmus is one of your good friends. I mean, what what were the attributes that you thought as a teammate were the best, like, big league type catchers? I mean, because, you know, sometimes they'll get hit, sometimes they won't. But, I mean, what were the attributes that you saw um, that made the kind of the better catchers? They were defense first, but they were also pitcher first. And that's probably one of the most fun things when I'm sitting in the booth. And I think you've actually texted me a couple of times when pitchers have been going well and how just like the rhythm of the game just seems so natural and so pure when the pitcher is working well with the catcher. And you can see it on other teams too, when the guy is just dialed in, pumping strikes, uh, not shaking. I like to call it grab and go, where the guy's basically throws the pitch, gets back on the rubber, grabs the baseball, shakes his head yes, and throws the baseball and goes. Um, but you know, Brad Osmus is a guy who comes to mind. He did just enough at the plate to be, you know, be a, be a threat at the bottom part of the order and give you a good at bat. Um, but uh, 
defensively, he was he was amazing. He was a small target. He was a good target from what I heard from other pitchers. Uh, obviously, going to Dartmouth helped him out because he was able to retain a ton of information and know how to pitch or how to adjust to guys. Um, I like the I like the catchers who who do the homework have the game plan, step in behind the plate, and recognize what the pitcher has that is working that day, and then watches the hitter. I love, I absolutely love it when I see a catcher put down a sign, get a pitch, and recognize a swing or a take even or how a guy maybe was off balance a little bit on a pitch and goes, oh, hey, there's something going on here. I think we might have a little bit of a spot to go attack this guy. Because you know as well as I do that when you're playing the game, you are not 100% every single day. Not everything is firing the way you want it to every single day. And if you can get a catcher who can adapt and adjust and convince the pitcher to make those adjustments, I think that's what kind of separates some of those guys and goes next level a little bit and enhances what is currently happening in the game at that moment. For sure. And to take it a step further as a young guy coming up, what better, like, you know, you have your, um, the, the Cardinals have a significantly uh, strong pitching staff typically. And I know Wayne Wright's a leader there too, but gosh, your first start in the big leagues or your first call up to the big leagues and Yachty's behind the plate. I mean, <laughs> how nice would that be? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What, how relaxed would you be? You know, you sometimes see it and they're like, all right, this guy got called up from AAA and so did this guy. And it's the catcher and the pitcher and they had a battery going in AAA. And you're like, oh, but, you know, it's a lot different when you come, you know, get called up the big leagues and Yachty's back there. And, and all you have to do is like, all right, I'm going to throw whatever this guy, you know, obviously yes, Yachty sir, has Mr. Molina. To, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Molina. But, you know, they have to learn you as well. But I think with their experience and stuff, they'll pick up right away. Like, all right, this guy has a really good sinker. This True. guy's got a slider and this is what he's got going that day. But, man, that's that's where I think about from a comfort level. It's like, all right, you know, Mr. Molina's behind the plate. I'm going to do whatever he says because of his experience. So, And then I think the last thing that we kind of could touch on, I mean, I, I do think he's a Hall of Famer. I, I guess I didn't ask you if you thought he was a Hall of Famer. I do. Do you think he'll go into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, he's got he's got 2,000-plus hits, and I think a lot of his peripheral numbers, you know, the war numbers and the – uh, you know, statistically and his caught stealings and the games caught, you know, there, there's a certain longevity to what he's done that I think qualifies him, but he's up over 2000 hits, hasn't gotten to 200 home runs, but you know, he's driven in a ton of runs. I can actually look that up right now. If I was actually good enough, I think he's done enough to become a, a hall of fame catcher. Yeah. You know, we talk about generations, we talk about, um, even positions. And I think as far as positions are concerned, He's sitting at 983 RBIs right now. So he'll get up over 1,000 RBIs, yeah. which I think is a phenomenal number and a career 280 hitter. Yeah, well, there you go. And you add that with the catching that he has. Yes, I believe yeah. he's a Hall of Famer. Awesome. I do as well. Um, so then the last thing is the fact that he's played his whole career in St. Louis. And I mean, we talked about uh, Tony Gwynn playing in San Diego his whole career. And, You're right. Um, you know, it's kind of a thing of the past now. It's, you know, they get to free agency and, you know, depending on where you are. But would, I mean, I don't know if that enhances the fact that he can go in the Hall of Fame with, you know, a bust and you don't have to figure out what uniform he's going to wear. But uh, <laughs> what 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 is, you know, what do you think that means? Not just the city of St. Louis, but what, I mean, do you think that's a, a thing of the past now? Or do you just think this is, I mean, I guess when you have a great player, like I'm assuming Mike Trout will not be ever traded out of, you know, no. Los Angeles. But now you're looking at the playoffs and all this. But I mean, who are the types of players that end up playing their whole, you know, career in one city? And is this something that is going to be, you know, less and less and less of a, uh, of a, of an accomplishment? Well, I think it'll be a less of an, it will be less 
guys doing it, but the guys who will be doing it will be guys like Mike Trout, Fernando Tatis Jr. signing a 13-year deal, Bryce Harper in Philadelphia. You know, it may not be the organization that they start with, but it'll be the organization that they do eventually you know, sign that long-term deal with. But as far as somebody who gets drafted, nurtured, and brought to the big leagues and stays in the big leagues, I think those days are going to be extremely rare. I think you're going to see more maybe of the Fernando Tatis type you know, uh, situations where they get drafted by a ball club, traded as a minor leaguer, and then get to the big leagues and get the big contract. But uh, as far as a guy, you know, the Biggios, Bagwells, Yadier Molinas, I think those days are uh, those days are long gone. They are they're they're. I mean, you may have Alex Bregman as a guy. You know, I want to move in. You know, transition a little bit and use that as a way to move into a, a quick quick chat about Bregman and Tucker coming back. But both those guys are drafted and developed by the Houston Astros. Alex Bregman signing, you know, he signed an extension for $100 million. So he may, he'll be in the Astro uniform, I think, for about eight years. And then it'll be his decision after that. Uh, Kyle Tucker's a guy who's still under control. So there's still the potential that he could be an Astro for life. But I think those days are few and far between. But uh, the Astros struggling a little bit in August, uh, playing, I mean, there were seven really good games against the Kansas City Royals, but I think they're more than happy to get them the hell out of town because it was so rough. But uh, they got Alex Bregman back. He hadn't played a game since June 16th. He came back, got a couple of knocks, scored the game-winning run on that uh, game against uh, the Kansas City Royals on that YouTube game I was broadcasting. And Kyle Tucker also got back in the lineup. So the Astros are actually getting back into form rather quickly. And um, I'm just going to rattle off a couple of numbers. So with Bregman in the lineup, the Astros third baseman hit 275 with seven home runs and 34 RBIs. In the time he was gone, all other third basemen hit two six or had 269 plate appearances and hit 254 with 10 home runs, 43 RBIs. Not bad. You know, we talk about war, which is wins above replacement. I don't know how much value that has, but if you're talking about somebody who replaced Alex Bregman, uh, you know, this doesn't take into account defense, but offensively, you know, they held their own for a little bit. You know, Led Miss Diaz had a lot to do with that, but it was kind of cool to see those numbers be so similar. But now with Alex back, you get the defense, you get the inspiration, you get a deeper lineup. And that's just, I think the Astros are set up for a strong finish. Yeah. So I think you had Garcia, Toro, and, um, and Diaz obviously filling in at third base during that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they certainly did hold their own. I don't think the Astros, have, the struggles have typically not been on offense either. True. But, you know, getting a key guy back, and we've discussed this prior, right, with the trade deadline and everybody saying, oh, yeah, we got to trade for this guy, trade for that guy. Well, I remember a couple of years ago where Verlander was hurt before the deadlines. Like, he came back. Okay, that made the pitching staff a lot stronger. Obviously, guys like Bregman and Tucker make the Houston Astros lineup go. So, you know, and then guys like McCormick and, um, who's the guy that's been playing center field who had gotten called Jake up? Jake Myers. The, yeah, there you go. So you get Myers, and those guys then can kind of fill the role that they were doing, whether it be platooning or pinch hitting or fit, fitting in to make that you know lineup even more robust. I mean, this is best-case scenario, right? The trade deadline, you guys strengthen the bullpen. You still have a strong record, but you're getting your offensive player and these key cogs back, and you didn't have to make a trade at the deadline. You just get these guys healthy. So I think yeah, – good call. Um, I think the fact that, you know, a lot of teams are experiencing this as well, you know, I, I think that that's something certainly considered when they're like, all right, who's, you know, who's getting healthy, who isn't. And, uh, you know, Alex Bregman, I joked earlier about who is he. I mean, he hasn't, he's been out since June 16th, but I mean. It's been 84 years. 
three months later, here he comes back and he's certainly a key <laughs> part of their lineup. And he's going to, you know, he's going to, he's not going to hinder the ball club at all, right? He's only going to help them. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great thing. It is. Astros getting back to full strength. You talked about him being healthy. And how about being healthy enough to play long enough in the big leagues to accrue 500 home runs and 3,000 hits? You talk about an exclusive group that is able to go out there and do that. Just to give you an idea, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Albert Pujols, Eddie Murray are the only guys to do it without using steroids. Now, that's the disclaimer because Alex Rodriguez and Rafael Palmero are on there. Obvious, noted steroid users, so I will leave them off that list. But that is one, two, three, four guys to have ever gotten 500 home runs and 3,000 hits. Now, Miguel Cabrera is the man of the hour. He just got his 500th home run up in Toronto. He currently sits, as as I wrote these notes down, 2,958 hits. So he will be in that 3,000 uh hit club because he has two more years on his contract and he said he's going to finish that out, play those two more years and then call it a retirement. He is a bona fide 100% Hall of Famer and arguably the best right-handed hitter. Uh, What do you think of that list, Tuttle? What do you think of Miguel Cabrera? Give me some thoughts on what he's been able to do throughout the course of his career because this guy has been doing it a very long time. And when you overshadow, and I really do believe that he has overshadowed, and maybe it's because I've been in Houston too long, but he's overshadowed what Albert Pujols has done you know, Albert did this earlier in the year, but or earlier in his career, now Albert over 600 home runs. But I really feel like Miguel Cabrera has cemented himself as one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a couple of factors there. One is the fact that he's now in Detroit, you know, for the last four or five, six years. Um, you know, they're not a successful team. God, this is such a good point, And thank you for bringing this up. Oh, uh, yeah. This is like the Trout thing, right? This is Trout and Otani. Like, nobody really gets to see him. When he somehow, when he was a young and up and comer with the uh, Marlins, he got a little more publicity. And maybe that was because they went to the World Series and, you know, were performing at that time. East Coast. Yeah, a little bit. East Coast, that's right. But man, he's lost up in Detroit. And I think you're you're absolutely correct. And then Pujols obviously had been accomplishing things, but Pujols is actually diminishing his accomplishments as well. Like, I I mean, I know he'll be a strong pinch hitter. Isn't that crazy to think about? I feel that way. Yeah, yeah, I totally feel that way. I mean, the, so I heard this argument the other day, and I, it just hit me like a lightning bolt when you mentioned that. Um, the and yeah, right. The NFL they I were talking about Hall of Fame. What Mark Ramos is going to do to that video. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but they uh, the coaches. This is they were talking about NFL coaches. Now the coaches in the NFL Hall of Fame now get a like Dick Vermeil's up for uh, the Hall of Fame this year. The coaches. There's a coaching organization that can vote guys in. And he's like, well, we're you know the guy the guys that we're talking about. I think it's Mike Florio and Chris Sims talking about the fact that well we're going to get a coach every year until we run out of coaches like. <laughs> you know, Dick Vermeil should be in. He won this and he won that. But it was interesting because the the tail end of that was somebody like um, Mike McCarthy or John Gruden. Like, is John Gruden getting into the Hall of Fame? Like, before, if he just stayed at Monday Night Football coaching, uh, I'm sorry, Monday Night as an analyst, they would have said, oh, yeah, Gruden for that six-year span, like, he could be in the Hall of Fame. No, I agree. Your face says it all. I mean, the longer <laughs> these guys coach, 
you know, like Mike Shanahan won a bunch of Super Bowls. They're like, he should be in. They, they're, you know, he won two Super Bowls. You know, the Giants, uh, the the guy that went, oh, gosh, I forget his, uh, Coughlin, Tom Coughlin, he should be mm-hmm. in. You know, guys like this that won two Super Bowls, they beat the Patriots, that, that whole argument. These guys that stick around and stick around and stick around, it's kind of like, do you get in? And so I go back to the Pujols comment, which is, like Albert Pujols, 3,000 hits, 600 home. I mean, he's a bona fide Hall of Famer, all on his numbers. And you look at his last four or five years with the Angels and Dodgers, and you're going to be like, oh, he's like a 240 hitter, and he can't run anymore. And it's like, I mean, all he's doing is diminishing what he accomplished before, as you just read that short list, as one of the best right-handed hitters. Miguel Cabrera is not doing that. He's still on the, you know, I don't know if he's on the uptake. He's just doing it in a hidden environment. So mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting conversation. I think obviously baseball is a very numbers driven uh, Hall of Fame kind of vote, and the voters are changing a little bit in terms of their. Um, we talked about Joey Votto last time. Maybe some of the metrics they're using and some of the old voters are getting out, and there's new voters coming in. But obviously, Pujols and Miggy Cabrera are certainly bona fide Hall of Famers. But I kind of feel like Cabrera flew under the radar in Detroit, but he's still accomplishing things. Whereas I feel like Albert Pujols is kind of diminishing what he did before he got to Anaheim. (laughs) So, um, you know, maybe he should have done what Yachty did, right? Just retire in St. Louis and be happy. Yeah, he would have had the numbers to get into the Hall of Fame. I still think at that moment, too, that's actually an interesting call. Oh, for sure. For sure. But I know this was really about Miguel Cabrera, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when you have Manny Ramirez in there, because he was used to be in the conversation of one of the best right-handed hitters in the game, but obviously some of his accomplishments are tainted, certainly. So, I mean, who takes that mantle? And, I mean, I think Miguel Cabrera is certainly up there. And, uh, and gosh, who knows what he's going to do in two more years. Like you said, he'll definitely right. be in 3,000 hits and, you know, maybe get a couple more home runs. And, you know, he's, he, he's a fantastic... Uh, player and i think we always talk about the longevity you can't just be a flash in the pan you can't just go you know we talked about nelson cruz i mean nelson cruz has been doing it for a long time now hall of fame or not that guy hits like 40 home runs every year but gosh you know hitting 40 home runs a year for 15 years gets you into another stratosphere Mm -hmm. well it's interesting that you do bring up nelson cruz because i do want to hit on him and he kind of you know the conversation gets further than miguel cabrera but for the time being i just want to you know linger on Miguel Cabrera and just, you know, what he's, he's got two MVPs. He won them in back-to-back years in 2012 and 13, where he literally swung the Detroit Tigers into World Series contention, uh, you know, during those early 2010s. So it was a lot of fun to watch him uh, do that. But then you brought up him doing it in Detroit, not, not a huge market, but a huge ballpark. You know, Comerica Park is not a place that is conducive for a guy that's going to go out there and go for a home run title or go for, you know, uh, 500 home runs. So the fact that he's been able to adapt his swing, use the opposite field a little bit more and get to that 500 plat- 500 home run plateau, maybe it's kind of ironic that he does get the 500th home run on the road away from Comerica Park. But at the same time, he's still been driving in a boatload of RBIs and he might be he might be the last guy that we see win a triple crown because he did do that when he won the MVP in 2012. He was first in batting average, first in home runs, first in RBIs. And those are the traditional numbers that everybody looks at to be as far as greatness. And he won the triple crown and he won the MVP that year where he beat out Mike Trout, who had more maybe non-traditional numbers. So I always found that fascinating. But you bring up Nelson Cruz. So if you go down the list of, of home run hitters and who might be the next to get 
to that 500 plateau. You have Miguel Cabrera. The next closest guy is your guy, Nelson Cruz. But he's at 443, and he's 41 years old. Does he have enough to get to that 500 plateau? I don't think he does just because of the age and you know the treachery of going through 162 games and trying to hit that many home runs. It's really kind of a fascinating thing to think about that Miguel Cabrera for a little while might be uh, one of the last guys that we see at that 500 home run plateau. And it's, but it's also the career arc. A lot of these guys get their home runs early, whereas Nelson Cruz kind of showed up. He was a late bloomer, man. He's gotten a lot of these home runs in the last 10 years. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I didn't even know that when I brought him up, but I think it's funny because the the 300 wins for pitchers, that went by the wayside, you know, many years ago, right? I mean, you had- Great call. Right, Cy Young at 5'11", yeah. and then 300 was the <laughs> Hall of Fame marker. And now I think you're going to be closer to like 200 just because of the specialization, right? We have relief pitchers. I mean, you're right. gosh, I used to- I used to watch the Yankees growing up because I lived on the East Coast. But Goose Gossage, I mean, I think I've mentioned that before. They would bring in, they bring him in like the seventh inning, you know, with one out in <laughs> the seventh saves, inning. Old yeah, and he'd, yeah, he'd th- he'd get eight outs, you know, he'd get seven or eight outs, and he just loved. I mean, that that was a closer, right? But um, and then the starter would obviously get the win if he had Goose following you up. So Ron Guidry got you know a lot of tip of the cap to Goose Gossage. True. But my point is is that I think the specialization makes that number go down. And I think you're you're right on, Blummer. I mean, 500 home runs is this plateau that, um, you know, is maybe a thing of the, you know, a bygone era. I mean, unless you can get some of these guys to the longevity because of the same reason that pitching wins go down, the specialization. I mean, you're facing, you know, a bunch of different guys at a bunch of different times in the games. And I think that... Yeah, pitchers are getting better. You're right. That's right. But the fact that Miguel has been able to do it in this era, I mean, Nelson, <laughs> if he plays, maybe Nelson goes off, let's say he hits 15 home runs before the end of this year, that gets him there. He's got to have a big year next year. He could do it in a year and a half. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, he needs you another two... Yeah. He needs another two years, right, to get to 500. But he's kind of the last yeah. guy to have a chance. Um, for that. I mean, and then, you know, maybe somebody like Trout, right? The superstars still may get a chance, right? Trout could be in that, no, in that realm if you're he stays right. healthy. There, there's, a, there's a great article on Fox Sports, and they, and they said, who's next to reach 500? And they actually have a list of about 20 guys. I'm not going to go through all of them, but Mike Trout's at the top of the list, like Tuttle is talking about, and they put their age and the, and the home runs they're at. So Mike Trout, at the age of 30, has 310 home runs. And at the pace he is on and he's been able to be consistent at, I think that he might be a guy, you know, for 190 home runs, you know, in his next 10 years, might be able to pull that off, only being 19 home runs a year. Yeah, uh, Bryce Harper and Giancarlo Stanton are next. Bryce Harper's 29, has 255 home runs in a very home run friendly ballpark. Giancarlo Stanton has 332 home runs at the age of 32. But how about some of these youngsters? Juan Soto, 23, 89 home runs. Vlad Jr., 23, 60 home runs. He's got some work to do. But the one that jumped at me was Ronald Acuna Jr. He is 24 years old and has 105 home runs. So keep just mark this podcast and mark those names and keep an eye on those guys because those are guys who are off to electric starts, much like Miguel Cabrera. Wouldn't it be really interesting, though, to read your own press and you're like, yeah, I have 69 home runs. I'm 23 years old. I'll, I'll get to the 500 club. I mean, that's a, re- that's a big stretch in Could any of those articles, right? Like, 
Wow. You're like, what the hell are they talking about? 500 home runs? I haven't even hit 100 <laughs> yet. Like that is an eternity away. I was, just, I would just bury that article somewhere else. I mean, you know, even Nelson Cruz is probably like <laughs> 500 home runs. Shit, I gotta play. You know, I gotta play like two more years. I don't know if I'm. Gonna... You would think Nelson has the realization of like how hard he's worked just to get to 443 right now. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, so I think that you know, obviously that article sounds a lot more like. Um, who are the superstars on the rise? But I think, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be few and far between, which I think was your entire point. Miguel Cabrera could be one of the yeah. last guys that we see in the next 10 years that gets to 500 home runs. And it could even be, you know, longer, you know, still to see a pitcher, you know, obviously get to 300 wins or something like that. So, um, you know, the game has changed. The numbers, as we talked about Joey Votto, some of those metrics should change along with it. And we'll still figure out who the Hall of Famers are. The good old eyeball test, right? There's analytics and eyeball mm-hmm. test. I mean, Yadi Molina, we talked about him already. That, I think he's a Hall of Famer. Albert Pujols, Hall of Famer. But, um, you know, we'll see how it changes and evolves. And we'll keep talking about it here on the Bleacher Blums podcast for sure. Absolutely. And I love the idea of milestones because, you know, it's good that current fans are seeing some of these milestones be hit. Because like Tuttle is saying, you don't know if they're ever going to be hit again with the way the game is being played. And to Tuttle's point with a 300-win plateau, how about uh, Craig Kimbrell and 400 saves? We talk about Mariano Rivera and Trevor Hoffman getting 600-plus saves. Now it feels like that 400-save plateau is the one to get to. And Kimbrell currently sits at 371. I believe he's going to get there because he's at a torrid pace. He's young. He's still highly effective. The next guy behind him, Kenley Jansen at 340. So to put things in perspective... I don't think Jansen gets to 400. Nope. I just think that he's he's diminished. Um, how about the 3,000 strikeout threshold? I don't think too many guys are going to get to that because of what Tuttle hinted about earlier with the 300 wins. Guys don't pitch long enough. Uh, and you know the way that they are being used doesn't allow them the opportunity to get to those. Max Scherzer is closest at 2,962. Yes, he will get there. I think he's going to the get next- there, especially if he keeps pitching the way he did last night. I think he's got a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. So you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, no kidding, dude. Keep pumping up. I mean, he's a guy that, le- you know, he's up there as far as, you know, uh, games with multi, you know, uh, 10 plus strikeouts. You know, he's a guy that's consistently up there. That So he, he will break the 3,000 uh, uh, strikeout plateau. How about the next closest guy? You ready for this? Zach Greinke, 2,798. He's not going to get it. Oh, he's not. He's going to need a couple more seasons to be able to go out there. I mean, he, yeah. maybe next season if he can go out, but it, currently he'd have to get 200 strikeouts. I think two more years. But in two more years, if he's able to do that, he might get there, but he's the next closest at almost 2,800. Yeah, I, I actually think he's... Those are some milestones going by the wayside. They are. I think he's got a chance to do it, but I, you know, I think it's really interesting, like those plateaus, like I said, those numbers are just going to have to change, you know? I mean... I agree. They're not going to have to change, but in terms of the metrics for, you know, who's got to do what and um, you know, what they can accomplish. But uh, that, I mean, it's a fascinating conversation. I mean, to see what guys are going to do. But I think the specialization, as we talked about, has really uh, changed the game in, in a lot of good ways too, right? I mean, but I, I couldn't believe the other night I was watching the Dodgers Padres. I always want to say Blake Snell. Is that right? Or is it Ian Snell? I always screw it up. Blake. Thank God. See, I mess it up every time. So Blake <laughs> Snell was out there and he went into the eighth inning and they were winning one nothing. They'd already robbed one home run. And he was p- at pitch 104. This is this is the point. 
And the announcers, I think it was Viscurgeon, was saying that the uh, the next pitch would be his, that would be the longest he's ever gone in a big league game. Most pitches he's ever thrown, 105. Wow. I was like, what? 105 yeah, pitches? that's crazy. God, in college, they were like 120 was like your mark. You know, like if you got to 120, they were like, hey, you know, let's, we don't want him to throw more than 125. Let's get somebody, you know, loose or let's get him through this inning, you know, 127, 128. 105 pitches are the most that Snell has ever thrown in a big league game. I couldn't believe it. And of course, Will Smith yeah. had a home run and the game went 16 innings and it was crazy. But <laughs> gosh, I mean, so so the reason I bring that up is the point of getting to 3,000 strikeouts and 300 wins. I mean, if you only throw 100 pitches in a game, that ain't happening. I mean, you got to get back to the Nolan Ryan days. I know he struck out 5,000, but it's like, dude, uh, you, you know, I've, th- I've only thrown 138 pitches. You can't take me out, you know, that kind of mentality. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen. But, you know, hopefully we're doing this podcast long enough to where we can start to see some of these adjustments to the milestone. But one thing we always look forward to in a podcast is that portion of the podcast where we get into Tuttle's mind and ask him, what'll Tuttle say? I love it. I feel like we haven't heard that in a while. So I don't think the, well, maybe they will. Houstonians may not like this, but they're not going to like what what'll Tuttle says today. I don't think. But I think we've crossed a line, a threshold for body positivity and then health and wellness. So getting catalogs at my house these days that are, you know, <laughs> promoting promoting like workout clothes and health and wellness, I think that's the intent with body positivity. And I'm not going to diminish the fact that, you know, you're the father of daughters, I'm the father of daughters and body positivity is certainly something that you want for your kids. All your kids look different not as much in the triplet realm or the twin realm that we have, but the kids are different. (laughs) They eat differently. They work out differently. They do all this stuff, but you know, you don't want them to have anxiety, but I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I say, we like society, when you're promoting people that are over morbidly obese or overweight in this realm of like, Hey, it's, it's okay to be this way because you know, you can be proud of who you are. And I think you can separate those two things. So I know this is out of left field, and I'm sure you're going to love this topic to 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 chime in on. But it's just <laughs> we need to find a way to promote health and wellness along with that. Everybody's bodies are different. We're all different colors, shapes, sizes. I'm I'm a total proponent of all of that. But if you are 200 pounds overweight or 300 pounds overweight, uh, the conversation should be around the fact that we need to be healthier. We need to make some changes so that we can be a healthier society and live longer. It shouldn't be the fact that, you know, you're beautiful just the way you are, regardless of, you know, the fact that you're diabetic or pre-diabetic or that you're going to die of a heart attack. So I know that's a strong statement, but... uh, I was just being inundated with some materials like, like, Hey, we're all, you know, we're all here together. We're doing great things. And I think that, uh, just being a proponent of health and wellness is, uh, probably a better road to take than promoting the fact that, uh, we're all beautiful no matter how we take care of ourselves. And, and I would, I would relate that to cigarette smoking and everything else. I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's not in the, you know, we watch Mad Men and the OBGYN's in there with a cigarette going, all right, yeah, your kid's <laughs> going to be healthy. It's kind of like we just evolve and we learn these things. So again, this is not a body shaming thing. This is not a, a, um, a uh, I guess, a criticism of people who are um, different shapes and sizes, but it certainly is something that we need to, you know, kind of bring to the forefront and say, look, we should be worried more about our health and wellness. Um, and there are many ways to do that. Yeah. 
There are. And I think especially during, I mean, there's so many things right there, but just because of the COVID era, we know that, uh, you know, morbid obesity is one of the morbid obesity is one of those things that contribute to the issues with COVID. So you have a pandemic going on and unfortunately those people are, you know, in that, uh, that danger area if they do contract COVID, but us being parents of kids and us growing up with athletic backgrounds, you know, it's been in our nature to be athletic and be, be fit, eat right, and try and take care of our bodies as much as we could, because our bodies were the tool that were, that was actually making money for us or trying to create a living. So there was a little more emphasis between Tuttle and I and our fitness. Now your kids play sports. My kids, uh, my four daughters have actually been very heavily involved in sports. So one of the things that we've actually had, and they're all girls, one of the things that, you know, we've had to navigate is, you know, the the body acceptance and and things like that and talk to them about that. It, it, luckily, it hasn't been an issue. We've tried to stay ahead of it and talk to them and have that open conversation. But I think that, you know, with our daughters playing volleyball, which is a highly athletic, you know, fast twitch strength type game that I'm learning, you know, their lower half has a tendency to be much more built, yeah, so to speak. You know, their, their ass is going to be a little... Yeah, strong legs, strong butt, you know, like that. Yeah. A little bit stronger. Lower half muscles. Their quads are going to be stronger. You know, the lower half is going to be a little more built. Right. And you bring up, an, you know, I hate that weight is a number because if you start putting a number on something, then you're going to think, well, I need my number to be this. When in actuality, you are perfectly healthy at 150 pounds right. being built the way you are because you are highly athletic. So that's kind of the conversation that we've had to help them understand that the way that they are built, they are not overweight for their age group. They're not overbuilt for the for their height. They're just built differently. And I'm a prime example of that. Being six foot three, 240 pounds, I'm not overweight because I, I, I try to eat as good as I can, but I also work out as often as I can too. So I still have some mass and, and muscle built up that, you know, add to that heaviness that I have and I carry around. Um, but that's where everybody's different. So it, it's kind of unique to have that understanding for my daughters to say, okay, if I'm working out, I'm going to be a little more built. The muscle mass is going to be more dense. So my weight's going to be heavier, but it's also been cool to see in the off season when they don't work out, they do lose that weight and they become, you know, a little more of who, who they are outside side of sport. But right. in society, and to Tuttle's point, just to finish this thing off, because I got a little long-winded right there, is life is not good when you're living at extremes, whether it's on the heavy side or the light side or on the left side or the right side. If we can all find it, kind of find that middle road and get to those middle lanes and travel together, we are all going to be much healthier mentally, physically, and emotionally if we're traveling down the middle part of the road as a unit. You know, and I want to make sure that everybody knows that, you know, I'm not saying go off on your own or I'm going to, I'm going to go off on my own. I want to do this with everybody. I want everybody to be in that, that lane together, pushing in the same direction in the middle part, not in the, not in the extremes. Life in the extremes is extreme for a reason. If you can find that median and that middle part and just kind of enjoy everything simultaneously and in moderation, I think we're going to be in a little bit better shape. Blummer. I did not tee that up for you. Um, you couldn't handle that any better in terms of me just throwing that topic out there. But I agree. I mean, that's kind of where I was headed in that, you know, we all have to get in the middle somewhere, but we're all kind of doing the best we can with our family. I just think some of the stuff that comes across, as you said, is extreme. I don't know why we have to be on extreme this way or an extreme on this way, especially when we're trying, like you said, within our own house to kind of control 
what gets let in, right? What you're, you know, what you're seeing and mm-hmm. what your expectations are. And I, one of the greatest things about, yeah, and it doesn't have to be CrossFit, but one of the greatest things about joining my CrossFit gym 10 years ago was that the first thing they tell you is to throw the scale away. Yeah. You know, if you're working out four or five days a week, I agree. And you're doing push ups and you're running and you're trying to eat better, like who, who cares if the scale says 240 or 220 or 190 or 150? It doesn't really matter what that scale says. It's really about you doing the best that you can. Somebody said this to fitness or health and wellness is about being better than yourself the day before. It's not about being better than other people. And I think if we all kind of go, love it. If we all go in that realm, I think we're going to be better for it. And that was really kind of the jumping off point for what my point was. We're letting these catalogs and these media things into our house. It's like, hey, you're, you know, you can be beautiful at any size. That's a true statement. I actually agree wholeheartedly with that. Yes. But let's not promote like cigarette smoking and lard eating and, you know, being obese. And let's not mistake that body positivity for health and wellness. And that was my only point because we do try and set an example for the the children in our house. And hopefully with this podcast, we can reach some other people that understand that the only the only thing you can do is your best, right? You don't have to do his best mm-hmm. or her best. You got to do your best. And let's not let's not mistake that from like I said for things that are you know on the extremes, which was your point. So do you got something to take us out here, or uh, what do you yeah, got to say? I got a quick little thing. I know that we talk about podcasts a lot on our podcast, and we we wish that everybody would share and subscribe to our podcast so that we could get a little bit stronger and get that notoriety and have a lot of fun. But uh, there's a lot of podcasts that uh, Tuttle and I listen to across uh, uh, the podcast platforms, and I just wanted to let people know, you know, what I'm listening to at the current moment. It's a pretty lengthy library. I'll try and pick out some of the uh, hot spots, so to speak. But uh, I'm always fascinated by some criminal stories or you know some high profile investigations that are going on. Uh, I listen to Lost Hills. And a lot of these are on uh, a Pushkin network, podcast network that kind of gets into sports criminality. Uh, you know, there's some interesting ones on that. Uh, Lost Hills was a one. Pushkin Industries is Gladwell, correct? Malcolm yes. Gladwell, I think. Yes, and that was, you know, I got into uh, revisionist history yeah. with Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote Outliers and uh, Talking to Strangers, had some very good books. So I found him on the podcasts, and I listened to his uh revisionist history. And it kind of led me to, there's another one on Pushkin called Cautionary Tales, which is very interesting. As far as sports wise, I listen to the Spa Track Network a lot. And it's because I want to know more about contracts. I want to know more about salary caps. I want to know more about, uh, you know, how organizations are running and what these contracts mean. So Spa Track. Which, which one is that? Uh, Spa Track, S-P-O- T-R-A-C. Oh, yeah. And uh, they do a really good job of dumbing down some of these contracts and and speaking to what they do. Chin Music is a Fangraphs uh, podcast that has Kevin Goldstein on it, who's a really good listen. I listen to the Wall Street Journal uh, daily uh, news. Um, I also listen, and I've read uh, the Houston, uh, not the Houston, good Lord, Harvard Business Review has a podcast, and I like their magazine. So I, they have an idea cast. Black Diamonds in baseball is run by Bob Kendrick, the uh, president of the Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame. So they've always got some good, diverse uh, stories being told about baseball and inside the sport. Got a long library. I can't even write that fast. Hopefully the hopefully the listeners are catching it. Yeah, we're gonna have to listen to this podcast again because those are some of the ones, and I can always you know text them out or tweet them out too. 
But those are the bulk of what I'm listening to. I'm not sure what uh, you're into, Tuttle, but mine are a little more informative and entertaining as far as like some of the crazier stories told around uh, life. Are you saying you listen to better things than I listen to? Is that what you're saying? No, not at all. Okay, good. All right. Just saying. I actually listen to some of the same ones you listen to, which is great. So the Wall Street Journal Daily one is one that I actually try and listen to. The problem is when I miss it one day, I'm like, oh, I guess I missed the news for that day. I jump on it the next day. I don't listen to it as often as I should. We, I said this earlier because I forgot the name of the podcast, but I've been listening. They changed the format, but Mike Rowe, the Dirty Jobs host, has The Way I Heard It. Yes. Which reminds I've me of the Paul, the Paul Harvey one. That one's great. I listened to one, this guy was a CrossFit coach, but he gets a ton of um, authors and motivational type guys. It's only about 55 minutes uh, once a week or, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 minutes called Chasing Excellence. Ooh. With the title, you got to like that. Yeah. Another one from Pushkin Industries, I believe, um, Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, um, has one called Against the Rules. That one's really good. The problem is, and I mean, you know, Michael Lewis's daughter was killed recently in a in a car wreck in Tahoe. Oh, no. Yeah, Tabitha Soren and Michael Lewis's daughter, and he has just gone silent, which I can imagine that that's affected a lot of that kind of stuff that they were doing. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean his original podcasts weren't good, but I, I'm, I'm assuming that one's kind of probably going to take some time to come back, if at all. But that one's good. There's a good uh, couple, couple of seasons of Against the Rules. Yeah. I do catch myself listening to the Jocko podcast on occasion. Oh, that's a good one, too. Uh, which the listener. Yeah. You know, a lot of military stuff. I have two more. There's a health and wellness one I like. Um, a gentleman named Peter Atia. He's a Johns Hopkins Stanford educated doctor. He has a podcast called The Drive. It's better if you subscribe to it. I think it's $140 a year to get all of the stuff, but um, most of it's Ooh. free. But he talks about, I mean, all kinds of stuff, whether you should do like continuous glucose monitoring, like he has people like COVID experts on. I mean, it's all medical stuff and he includes like spreadsheets and labs and things. I mean, like it's, you can get way into the weeds. And then I'm like you, I like true crime stuff. I mean, I listened to all the Wondery podcasts way back when, mm-hmm. um, some of the uh, other NPR type based serial Serial was really good if you haven't listened to that one. So like you said, our libraries are pretty full. I listen to more nonfiction and uh, good stuff, I find. So I, I would love to hear, as you said, let's have everybody, of course, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And then once you do that, why don't you uh, send us an email at bleacherblums.com or reach out to uh, at Real David Tuttle on Twitter and Instagram, Blummer at Blummer27 on Twitter and Instagram and tell us what you guys are listening to because, man, the way to expand your library is to uh, have some suggestions mm-hmm. and find a new topic, right? Yeah, you got to share them and that's what uh, Tuttle's talking about. And it's been another fun episode right here in the bleachers with everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we want to thank all military. We know that uh, these are some trying times right now and some unique experiences for for some of the military. So if, if you are uh, packing up and getting ready to go to protect us, we greatly appreciate you. And we are thinking about you uh, constantly as you put yourself in harm's way to protect our safety here at home and abroad. All of those here, first responders and uh, EMTs, nurses, doctors, police, men and women who go out there and really put themselves in harm's way before us. Uh, we greatly appreciate you. We constantly think about you. That's why we end every episode of Bleacher Blums talking about you because it's about what you've done to sacrifice for our well-being. And that is going to do it for this podcast. Tuttle, we always tell them at the end of every podcast, you got to get after it and you got to believe it. Believe it.
You ready, Freddie? Ready as I'll ever be, Freddie.